Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from Warnell Road Baptist Church. They are actually, since you guys are meeting kind of early, they're actually meeting right now. And I, I think they're, they're praying for you in their pastoral prayer, even this morning. Uh, and they pray for you regularly. Uh, it's so good to be with you. Uh, I've never been in an outdoor gathering like this. You know, what's, what's helpful is that instead of looking at the clock, I can just watch the shadow. You know, the farther it goes this way, it's like, I need to, I know, I need to wrap up the sermon. Um, yeah, if I've never met you before, my name is Jeff Chang. I used to be one of the pastors here for, for, for a decade. Uh, I love this church. Uh, and for those of you who have come after my time here, I'm so glad that you're a part of this church. Uh, the Lord is doing a wonderful work through this church in the Pacific Northwest and around the world. Uh, we hear stories of what the Lord is doing out here through you. And we praise God for it. Um, I bring you also greetings from my own family. Uh, Stephanie and Jubilee and Ransom and Addison, they're all here. Uh, God has been so kind to us in our transition to Kansas City. I'm enjoying the work that I'm doing as a professor. As I said last year, um, any good that I do is owing to your investment in me. Uh, so, so we praise God for that. Uh, Stephanie is now working as a paralegal. Um, the kids are all doing well. They, they've made friends. They like their new schools. Uh, and, and we all miss you. Uh, we often reminisce about life on the block, um, about the, the beauty of the Oregon coast, all the fun trips that we took out here. Uh, but most of all, we miss this church. Um, my kids uh, always say that what they miss most about Portland is Henson. Uh, and that's true. I, I totally understand. Uh, you know, I personally have so many good memories here. Um, but the Lord is continuing to teach us uh, that, that this world is not our home. Right? As Paul says, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is ahead. What's coming up ahead is even better than whatever that's gone before. And we can praise God for that and look forward to what he has in store for us. And so we persevere in hope. Well, it's, it's such a joy to be with you this morning. Let me, uh, let me pray for us as we open God's word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would encourage us from your word this morning. Lord, help us to understand who you uh, have made us to be. Uh, Lord, that that would equip us then to live faithfully in this world that you have placed us in. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Christian identity uh, was something that the Apostle Peter thought a lot about. Uh, by 60 A.D., well, we see Christian congregations being planted throughout the Roman Empire. But strangely, these congregations weren't made up of any one ethnicity. Uh, they, they had Jews and, and Gentiles come together from all parts of the empire. Uh, when we read the epistles, we see that these congregations could across all kinds of social lines. Uh, men and women, masters and slaves, rich and poor. And the question that everyone was asking in those early years was, who, who were these Christians? Who are these Christians? Uh, after all, these Christians often met in secret, meeting early in the morning or late at night. There were rumors that these Christians were immoral and even cannibalistic, drinking blood and eating flesh. Some people mocked them for worshiping a, a crucified criminal. And many of these Many people accused these Christians of sedition, of being rebels against the empire, 
for refusing to sacrifice to the gods or worship the emperor. You know, when we read about the earliest Christians, we find them to be in a difficult situation. They were misunderstood, they were slandered, they were mocked, seen as enemies of the state. They were often on the underside of kind of normal society. And as we look at things now 2,000 years later, you know, the situation for Christians all over the world really hasn't changed that much, has it? Uh, from China to Afghanistan, maybe even to Portland. Uh, people are asking, who are these Christians? All kinds of false ideas and, and misunderstandings abound. You know, the world may be asking, who are these Christians? But I think even more important than what the world thinks is what we think. Right? Christian. How would you answer that question, who are these Christians? So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Now Peter, again, is writing to these early Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And this is the question that he wants to answer. Who are these Christians? Not, not for the sake of unbelievers, because they're always going to misunderstand. But he wants to make sure that these Christians know who they are. So I'm going to read here 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. I'm going to read from the ESV. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to answer one question. Who are these Christians? And in this passage, we see three wonderful answers. Number one, we are the new temple of God. Number two, we trust the cornerstone. And number three, we are God's chosen people. Friends, I don't know about you, but you know, I don't always have a clear view of what God is up to among his people in our day. But I pray that as we consider this passage, uh, we would walk away with a deeper sense of who we are in Christ and therefore a greater courage to live in this world as his people. All right, so number one, we are the new temple of God. That's what we see in verses four through five. Uh, in, in the previous section, Peter is describing how believers have been born again through the imperishable seed of the word of God. They have tasted that the Lord is good. And now, as those who have come to Christ by faith, we see here that, that Christians are being changed. They have been united to Christ, and they are being conformed to the image of Christ. We see in verse 4 that Christ 
is the living stone, the one rejected by men, but chosen by God. But notice in verse 5 that we Christians are also now living stones. Now, in the next section, Peter is going to talk about Christ being the cornerstone, but here he's focusing on Christians. Christians are, he says, living stones. How? By faith in the one true living stone, Jesus Christ. In other words, faith in Christ is changing us. God's love is unconditional, but God's love does not leave us in our condition. No, God's love changes us. We're being radically transformed from the inside by the Holy Spirit, and our lives are being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. As you come to him, you too are living stones, Peter says. And now, as living stones, we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The point of being a stone, a living stone, is not so you can lie in a field all by yourself. Because you know what that's called? That's called rubble, right? You're not rubble. No, we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. We, we now have a corporate identity. We are now being made into the new temple of God. Now, for us to realize what an amazing thing that is, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the largely Jewish audience that Peter would have been writing to in his day, right? Because many of these Jews would have had fond memories of their trips to Jerusalem. Uh, they would have remembered the, the grandeur and the beauty of the temple. And yet that temple was not just kind of a fun cultural experience. No, it was proof that God dwelled with his people. Uh, in the book of Exodus, we see God descending from heaven onto Mount Sinai. And then his glory descends from Mount Sinai into the tabernacle where he dwells among his people. And then God travels with his people, and eventually God's presence comes to rest in Jerusalem, in the temple. The temple stood for God's presence and rule here on earth. Peter is writing this letter sometime around 60 AD. In, a, in about a, a decade, the temple there in Jerusalem would be burned to the ground. But that temple was never the culmination of God's promises. No, it pointed to a far better temple one made up of living stones. You know, here Peter is saying that God's spiritual house is not a building. No, it's a people. God dwells in the church. You, the church, are the new temple of God. You want assurance that God has chosen you, that God's presence is here on earth? Look at the church. Look at where God's spirit dwells. And the proof of it is in your transformed lives. You are not who you used to be. You have been changed. You Christians are living stones being built into the new temple of God. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's temple today is not built by wood or stone. It's built by born-again, spirit-filled people. Just as the Old Testament temple was the place where God dwelled, the place where God's word reigned, so now the church is the place where God's spirit dwells, the place where God's word reigns. So you want to know where God dwells here on earth? He dwells with his people. He dwells in the church. And again, when I say the church, I don't just mean kind of that universal church of all Christians in all places and all times. That church has not yet gathered. 
No, it will gather when Christ returns. But when I say church, I mean the local church. Right? Where, wherever God's word is rightly preached, wherever his ordinances are rightly kept, even a congregation like this, Vincent Baptist Church. Not this building, not the elders, but the people, the congregation. You are the temple of God. This is where the Spirit dwells. This is where God's Word reigns. What happens each time you gather is the fulfillment of all that we see in the temple in the Old Testament. Well, if you're going to have a temple, then you have to have a priesthood. Not only are Christians living stones, but we are, it says here, a holy priesthood. And as priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Think about how hard it was in the Old Testament to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God, right? Uh, the priests had to come from a certain tribe. They had, they had to be like the right time of year. Uh, they had to be ritually consecrated. Their clothes and their bodies had to be washed. They had to wear the certain kind of clothes. They had to or, offer the sacrifices in a certain way, certain kind of animals. If you offered anything outside of that, that usually meant instant death. But here, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, we all offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Really? As, as frail and broken, as sinful as we are? How do we do that? There's, only, there's really only one requirement. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. Right? All of those priestly requirements of the Old Testament are now fulfilled in Jesus Jesus is the one perfect high priest, the one perfect sacrifice. And through faith in Christ, as we rest in his finished work, as we are united to him, God accepts and he delights in the humble, thankful service of his people. You know, friends, again, marvel at what Peter is saying here. Peter, of all people, understood what a big deal the temple and the priesthood were. When Jesus was on earth and he took his disciples on a field trip to the temple, one of them said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what a magnificent building. Now, Peter is looking at Christians, at the church, who are trusting in Christ, who are indwelt by the Spirit, and he says to us, look at these Christians, what wonderful stones, what magnificent building." Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you're ever tempted to minimize the church. I wonder if you're ever tempted to leave the church behind. You know, so many in our day are pointing out the abuses and errors of the church. And so many in our day are saying, I'm done with the church. I'm done with institutional religion. Now it's just me and Jesus. You know, brothers and sisters, you might be tempted to think that way someday. I want to tell you, the church, no matter how imperfect, no matter how flawed, if it's a church that's preaching the gospel, that's holding on to Christ, then it is the temple of God, right? Here in this age before the return of Christ, God's purposes are being fulfilled through the church in noticeable ways and unseen ways. And it is with the imperfect church that God dwells. So, so don't lose sight of the theological meaning of this gathering. This isn't just some random meeting. No, this is, if you're a Christian, this is your spiritual home. This is where God dwells. And no matter how difficult, this is where you want to be. 
That doesn't mean you need to be a member of any one particular church, but I hope that for the rest of your life, while the Lord gives it to you here on earth, that you will see being a part of a local church is just normal discipleship to Jesus, right? Being a, being a living stone connected to a temple of God. And we are also God's holy priesthood here on earth. Uh, as, as the priesthood, when do we offer these spiritual sacrifices? Well, we offer them every time we gather together for worship under the banner of the gospel, in our singing, in our prayers, in our thanksgivings, in our offerings. You know, it all feels so routine sometimes, but realize that we are the ones who are worshiping God rightly in this world. Think about all the false worship that exists all around us. God, God hears that and he rejects it all. But for Christians to gather week after week under the gospel, God is pleased to accept our praises and our offerings and our worship week in and week out through Jesus Christ as we rest in his finished work. And our spiritual sacrifices happen not only when we've gathered, but also when we're scattered. Knowing Jesus who gave his life for us, then we give ourselves as living sacrifices to God, you know, are, are, are wholly acceptable to him as our spiritual worship. This is what God's holy priesthood is up to in this world. You know, we sometimes think that what I do in the church is like the spiritual part of my life and what I do in my office, what I do in my home, that's like the secular part of my life. That, that's not at all what we see here, right? What, in whatever context God has placed us in, we are offering spiritual sacrifices to him as you cheerfully do honest work in your workplace, as you open your homes up to your neighbors, as you mentor that young Christian, you are offering up spiritual sacrifices and God is pleased. He receives that with joy. What would it look like for you to be God's holy priesthood to those around you even this week through Jesus Christ? Who are these Christians, asks the world? We are the new temple of God. Number two, we trust the cornerstone. That's what we see in verses six through eight. You know, Peter here is quoting from Isaiah 28 there in verse six. And there their people in Jerusalem had made a covenant with death and boasted that they would escape disaster. But notice how God responds. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He responds by saying, there's only one thing you can count on. Only one thing you can build on. And that's the, the cornerstone that I've laid. All other hopes, all other foundations will crumble. But Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, is the precious and chosen cornerstone. Now, the Roman Catholic Church argues from Matthew 16, that the Pope today sits in apostolic succession from Peter. And it's on Peter that Christ has built his church, and therefore the Roman Catholic is the only true church. Let me just point out here that Peter himself only gives us two categories of stone. Right? There's Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and through Christ, every Christian is being made into living stones. That's it. So according to Peter, the Pope is not any more a special living stone than any other Christian. Right? Jesus alone is the cornerstone. And all those who believe on him will not be put to shame. 
Well, what does it mean to believe on him? It means trusting in him, trusting in God's precious and chosen son rather than anything else. It means being willing to stake your life, your reputation on him. Believing on the cornerstone means that you build your life on Christ alone. That's the point of this image of cornerstone. Back in those days when you were laying the foundation of a building, you had to lay a foundation made up of many foundation stones. But the most important stone was the very first one that you put down, the cornerstone. And that stone had to be absolutely perfect. Uh, It had to be perfectly straight, perfectly level, perfectly laid. If the cornerstone was crooked or flawed in any way, then those flaws would perpetuate throughout that foundation and eventually perpetuate throughout the building and the whole thing would come down. But if you set down a perfect cornerstone, then all the other stones would be properly aligned and the house would have a solid foundation. You know, I think that's such a wonderful image for what it means for us to trust in Christ. To come to him is to align your life, to to build on Christ and who he is and what he has done. If you decide to make anything else your cornerstone, the building is going to fall. If you decide to make fame your cornerstone, your building will fall. If you decide to make family your cornerstone, your building will fall. There, there is no stone that is perfect and strong enough to sustain the weight of your life. So practically, that means that every part of your life should somehow connect to the Lordship of Christ. You know, you might say, I want to be a world-famous skydiver, right? Uh, you might say, I, I really want to get married. Uh, I, I want to be at the top of my field in my career. No, those things might all be fine in one sense. But if you're a Christian, the most important question is, what does that have to do with Christ, right? Uh, How is that ambition building on the cornerstone? How am I trusting in Christ in those endeavors? Again, that's not to say that any of those things are wrong or sinful. But if that's what you're pursuing, how does it align with the lordship of Christ, of him, the cornerstone? Sin, on the other hand, is when we refuse to build on Christ, when we stop trusting him, when we disobey his word. Christ, the cornerstone, says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart. But we say, no, that can't be right. I want to live for my pleasures. I'm going to set my life way over there, away from the cornerstone. Christ says, love your enemies. Pray for those who wrong you. Forgive. But we say, Jesus, you don't know what I've been through. I'm going to hold on to my bitterness. I'm going to wait to get revenge. Friends, whenever we try to make pride or bitterness or greed or anything else, the cornerstone of our lives, when we build apart from Christ, our lives will sooner or later crumble to the ground. This is why repentance and faith is the only way back. If you've sinned, if you've built way over there, the only solution is to stop trying to find other cornerstones. No, confess your sin to God. Come back. Leave those false cornerstones behind. And once again, go back to Christ. Place all your hope in Him. Begin building on Him once again, even with all the broken pieces of your life. Brothers and sisters, there can only be one Cornerstone. Only Jesus is worth building on. 
We want to take every part of our lives and align them with Christ, staking our joy, our future, our hopes on him. And here's the promise for all who will do so. They will not be put to shame. They will be vindicated for their hopes on their last day. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I think a lot of people sometimes say to themselves, yeah, I'm not entrusting my life to Jesus, but, but I'm not rejecting him either. He's a good guy. I'm kind of neutral. I like to keep my options open, try multiple things, and I'll give Jesus a try. But friend, if Jesus is the only cornerstone, that sort of approach is not really an option, is it? To be kind of neutral or indifferent to Jesus is to reject him. To not make a choice about Jesus is to reject him. Friend, for all the reasons why people are indifferent about Jesus, I think actually very few people have met him. Uh, very few people have ever, ever sat down with an open Bible and read from the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life, and considered who he was and what he came to do. If you're going to reject Jesus, at least really reject him, right? Don't, don't just reject some made-up version of him. And once you encounter him, C.S. Lewis observed that really there are only a few options of what we can do with him. You might say that he was crazy, uh, someone who was literally a lunatic and went around and claimed to be God and to be able to forgive sin. You, know, you might as well believe that he was a kangaroo. Or you might say that he was a liar, right? In, in which case, that would have been one of the most wicked and blasphemous things anyone could have ever done, deceiving millions of people. Or you would have to say that he is Lord, exactly who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world. You know, if you really met Jesus, there is no place for thinking that Jesus was simply a good teacher, someone that we can admire, but ultimately be indifferent to, because he never claimed that for himself. We, as Christians, believe that Jesus was not a liar. He was not crazy. No, he is Lord. He is the cornerstone. He came to live a perfect life, and by his death on the cross, he paid the punishment for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. And then he rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven to reign. And he promises that he will one day return to judge, to rid this world of evil, and to make all things new. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the people here would love to arrange a time for you to read the Bible with them, to get to know Christ, that you might encounter him for yourself, and decide for yourself what to do with him. And yet even today, you can place your trust in him. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, who are building your lives on him, be encouraged. All day long, you hear this world rejecting Christ. Society tells you, don't be so bigoted, don't be so narrow-minded or exclusive. Perhaps parents or mentors or loved ones have told you, stop wasting your life on Jesus. You no, know, live for your career, live for yourself. You hear voices like that week after week, it's easy to be discouraged. But if that's you, I want you to be encouraged because you are not alone in your hope in Jesus. Yes, there are other Christians who believe on Christ, and that's wonderful. But most of all, we see here in verse 6 that God has chosen Jesus. God has chosen his son. He is the cornerstone 
chosen by God and precious to him. God looks at Jesus and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you have chosen to build your life on Jesus, know that you have chosen what God has chosen. And if God has chosen Christ, then what does it matter that the world rejects him? They put him to death, but God raised them from the dead. They crowned him with thorns, but God has crowned them with all glory and honor. They nailed him to a cross, but God has put him on the throne of the universe. Oh, friends, if God has chosen Christ, then you are doing the only right thing by building your life on him. Well, verse 7 ends with this terrible warning. All those who reject Christ, they think they've won. They think that they are exercising their freedom to rebel against God's man. But as it turns out, quote, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As those who are enslaved to sin, all of humanity is destined for disobedience and therefore destined for everlasting judgment. Unless God intervenes, we will all just reject Christ. Which brings us to our last point, verse point number three. We are God's chosen people. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, think about how remarkable these words would have been to those first century Christians. Perhaps perhaps at one point, these Christians might have been proud of their Jewish heritage or their Roman citizenship. But now that identity has been replaced. Their citizenship is no longer with any earthly nation. No, their identity, their belonging, their citizenship is with a new people, a holy nation belonging to God. Celsus, one of the early opponents of Christianity, mocked Christians as being, quote, only made up of foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children, close quote. You know, I don't think he was actually that far off. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You know, in the first century, the church was largely actually made up of those of lower class, of the lower class. You know, I I don't know if early Christians ever looked around the room and thought, this is it. This is all we've got. But friends, look at how differently God thinks about the church. The church is precious to him. They are a chosen race, Peter says. What does it mean that the church is chosen? People sometimes get hung up on this idea of God's choosing. I don't think it's that complicated at all. Because choice is the language of love. Most of all, to be chosen means that God has loved the church. God has chosen these people out of all the nations of the world to be his people. Why? Because he loved them. That's basically it. Not because of any good quality in them, not because of anything they brought to the table. No, simply because God loved them. Brothers and sisters, if you're a part of the church, 
then know that the only reason you are here, that you are following Jesus, is because God has chosen to set his love on you. Not because of anything you bring, simply because of his gracious love. And not only that, but again, we see that the church here is a royal priesthood. In the first point, we see that the church was kind of a holy priesthood offering sacrifices to God. But here, she is a royal priesthood. We are a nation of king priests who who, who rule with Christ, who represent God before this fallen world. Yes, not many of you are powerful, not many of you are noble birth. But even so, church, you are a nation of kings and queens and priests. We are his ambassadors as we proclaim his word, as we live by his word, as we exercise his reign here on earth. And you are a holy nation. Even today, Jesus Christ is Lord. And as Lord, the universe is his kingdom. Every earthly kingdom today that refuses to acknowledge his reign exists in rebellion against him. But the church, we submit to his reign. His word is supreme in our lives. And his word makes us a holy nation among the nations. You know, as one scholar has said, it's as if the church is like this time machine from the future, right? Even though we're citizens of a future kingdom, we've somehow gone back in time. And we are living in this portion of human history where where we've been redeemed, yes, and yet Christ's reign is not yet consummated. And so, as we live in this past time, we continue to live out our future citizenship. We, We love one another, as we will one day do in that kingdom. We worship our king. We follow his word. And even though the world doesn't know what to do with us, we, we, seek, we seek to live at peace with this world. Right? We pay our taxes. We pray for our authorities. We submit to them. And we proclaim that our king and his kingdom are coming. And when he comes, we will be shown to be God's special possession his inheritance, his delight. Just as God delights in his son, so he will delight in us. He will be our God. We will be his people. Friends, what this section teaches us is that the church is God's chosen people. We are, through Christ, the new Israel. Again, think about how much God loved Israel in the Old Testament, how he covenanted himself to her, how patiently he bore with her, how tenderly he led her through the wilderness feeding her and caring for her and protecting her. Think of how the prophets described God's covenant with Israel like a marriage. Friend, all that particular love that God had for Israel was only a shadow. God's love for the church is the reality. The Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant failed, but the New Covenant in Christ will never fail. We are his chosen people, his special possession. As Sally Lloyd-Jones writes, In the Jesus Storybook Bible, God will always love us with his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The world looks at Christians and it scoffs, it slanders, it mocks. They may even graffiti our buildings and throw bricks through our windows. But as far as God is concerned, we are his chosen people. He delights in us because he delights in his son. As weak and small as we may be, he is not ashamed to call us his possession. Brothers and sisters, looking at this passage, God wants us to believe that he loves us. 
that, that we actually stop wondering whether or not God loves us, but that we actually believe it. Uh, what more could he do to prove his love? He has given us his son. And through his son, he has made us his, his people, his special possession. We will not live rightly in this world as we ought unless we are convinced down to our bones that we are his, that he loves us. For those of you who are parents, I think you understand something of how this works. No, we all want our kids to know that they are loved, right? I want that for my kids. As far as their relationship with me goes, I want them to know that they have nothing to prove, that they are mine, that they are secure in my love for them. Even though I didn't choose for them to be born in my family, man, if I could choose them, all, I, I would choose them every day, all day, all three of them. They are precious to me. I want them to know this. I want them to know this especially because when I send them off to school or to camp or, or to recital, that they are going to hear all kinds of voices of temptation and self-doubt. They're going to experience failure and defeat. But amid those difficulties, I long that they would know that they are loved by their dad no matter what happens. And perhaps in some small way that that would help them to persevere through this fallen world. Brothers and sisters, don't find your worth in what the world thinks of you. Don't find your worth in what you can build with your own two hands. No, rest in the love of God for you through Christ. You are a chosen people. You are loved. Believe it. Rejoice in it. And then walk out into this world knowing that you belong to him, that he cherishes you, that he will never let you go. It's in this confidence then that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 9. Our job in this world is not just to exist. Our job is not merely just to hold on until Jesus comes back. No, we have a mission. We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to this dying world. And out of all of God's excellencies that we can proclaim, the greatest one that we are to proclaim is this. It's his grace. That's what we see in verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have come to know the grace that calls sinners out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have come to know the grace that lavishes mercy on those who don't deserve it. The grace that makes us his beloved people. Christian, tell the world about the excellencies of God's grace through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. You know, evangelism is not this burdensome task that we've been given. It's not about making a sales pitch for some random product that you know nothing about. You're not selling, you know, steak knives or solar panels. No, evangelism is talking about the grace that has saved you. Talking about God's excellencies as you've come to know it. Which means even if you just became a Christian yesterday, you are ready to proclaim. You're ready to say something. Yes, there's always more that you can learn, but just tell others what you know. I think that's why newer Christians are often better evangelists. They, they may not know much, but they know their sin. They know the mercy that they received. You know, the longer you're a Christian, the more that you start to learn kind of technical language, like Christianese, kind of theological terms. And the more your conversation about Jesus becomes kind of distant and impersonal. Soon we find ourselves 
when we're trying to share the gospel, we're just kind of going through the motions. We're, we're like trying to make a sales pitch. I remember one time being in a group where I was having to talk about my testimony. And I've told the story of my conversion many times, but like as I was telling it, I was starting to get bored by my own testimony. I, and, you know, I just found myself going through the motions, telling the same old things. And, and I said to myself, like, hey, wake up. Don't just go through the motions. Like, tell it for real. Right? Tell it as a sinner who has been shown mercy. I was reminded of my sin. I was reminded of all those that I grew up with who heard the same gospel and yet who have walked away and how God has sustained me and kept me. I was reminded of how kind God has been to give me faithful parents and faithful churches and faithful preachers to, to show me the gospel. And as I remembered that once I had not received mercy, but now I have received mercy, I began to tell my testimony and share the gospel with genuine gratitude and appropriate emotion. And I could tell in my hearers, they were like, oh, hey, something's going on here. He's, he's talking about something that he actually believes in. They noticed that this was something genuine. And it opened the door for me to talk about the gospel. Friend, when sharing the gospel, don't just go through the motions, right? Talk about God's excellencies. Tell people about Jesus who laid his life down to save you. Talk about the God who had mercy on you. Proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved you. There are people in your life today who are asking, who are these Christians? They've heard rumors. They've read the papers. They've read false teachings. They've had bad impressions from the past. They have all kinds of wrong ideas. They don't know that Christians are the new temple of God. They don't know that Christians are God's chosen people. And even more, they have never met Jesus, the cornerstone. But you know what? They know you. Christian, what will the world learn about Christ from watching your life? What will you tell them? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one, the only cornerstone of our lives, of the universe. Lord, all else is shifting sand. Oh God, we confess, so easily we are tempted to build elsewhere. So easily we are drawn to other foundations, to other hopes. But Lord, this morning we confess, no, there is no other foundation. Christ, you alone are the cornerstone. So Lord, help us to build our lives on you. Lord, help us to set our, our hopes on you, to know the excellencies of your grace by which we're saved. And Lord, even this week, use us to make known Christ to all those around us. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the church's one foundation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.